How's it going, guys? This is Cooper Greenberg. <laughs> this is Chris McKee. You're listening to Fretboard Confessional, the podcast where a couple of guys talking guitars and a bunch of other stuff as well. As usual, sponsored by Alamo Music because we work here. It's two guitar players, one room. That's what we're doing here. The room. <laughs> You're my favorite customer. So we're in here today post nam mm. i get to fill chris in on a bunch of cool stuff that i saw i know that you said in our last episode that you know it's not full-on nam because a lot of people weren't there but those that were tried their best to make up for it it was pretty cool it was interesting so i you know i didn't get to go to the show this year i saw footage from people online it looked like uh, certain floors were not full which has not been my experience in the past. Yeah, uh, It looked like there were a lot of areas that were just for private meetings that some vendors had really kind of geared it just to meeting with their dealers and not totally. having like a public booth. Yeah. Is that kind of what you saw? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was wild seeing even the biggest companies did have that. They, they had a display area, but then a super secret cubicle area for meetings. But... Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I spoke with Mark from FERC. He was not there, you know, presenting Right, they guitars. didn't have a booth at all. Yeah, yeah, so he just texted me. He was like, I'm on the second floor on an orange couch. Come find me. <laughs> that's great. Um, it was cool. It was, that's how I'm going to conduct meetings yeah, in the future. Yeah, I'm on an orange couch. Like, that's called wheeling and dealing right there. Oh, like, you don't. I don't need an dealing. office. I've yeah. got a couch, and just down the hallway, there's a bathroom. We're good. Yeah. No, it was, it was solid. I mean... Like I told you, we weren't there for too long. We only really had one full day at the show. And so I squeezed in as much as I could. And I met with a bunch of people. But in terms of walking around the show floor, I was surprised. And I probably should have expected this, but it was more pro audio than anything. Mm-hmm. Like guitar wise, there were some really cool booths. Even like Rickenbacker, which I was mo- really excited to see, did not have any playing area. It was, and no table to sit down and talk to anybody it was literally just hanging guitar hooks that were zip tied and you couldn't take them off and mm. it was just look at these and you're done you know? yeah um be like i can do that online buddy. yeah but you can't see price in either <laughs> of them um martin had a pretty fantastic booth but the dealer meetings took place inside like at tables amongst the thousands of fans how they typically do it which drives me crazy it was pretty wild now i thought i'd heard that they were going to occupy fender's previous space but then the pictures i saw showed them on the main floor again they're on the main floor so that's where they've always been and i've never understood it because it's an acoustic guitar company and you want to hear the stuff going on but there's generally way too much noise yeah to really appreciate what's going on and the funniest part is all the tables had like a reserved sign on them Mm -hmm. for individual deal i mean you know reps and all the chairs like if a a fan walked by wanting to check out a guitar and sit down in a chair and grabbed one the rep would be like hey we're using that yeah and so you saw people playing ten thousand dollar custom shops sitting crisscross applesauce on the ground it was a lot of public there i I heard so usually it's not usually it's a lot of dealers and then like the public who could snag a pass from a friend who had a a store or something but i heard there was a lot of just general public in the show yeah a lot of gin pub um but pop people but you know taylor martin had my favorite on the on the floor you know it was really cool there was cool stuff all around there was the new oberheim uh synths were out there the uh the roads kind of resurgence was out there and they had stuff to play and that really did cool you booth. see stevie wonder 
Um, <laughs> He's generally hard to miss. I did not see Stevie because uh, I was upstairs on a couch with yeah. Mark Harris. Uh, but Taylor had it set up very, very cool. Mm-hmm. They were on the second floor. A whole kind of walkthrough of Taylor history for Gen Pop. And then right next to it, it was kind of where meetings happen. But they, I mean, they, I'm sure they've done this before, but I was surprised they constructed like isolation rooms yep. for you to go in. It was really cool. Talk about they've done it before. It's a funny story in, in uh, Bob Taylor's autobiography that he wrote. Their very first NAMM show, they created a, an isolation booth with plexiglass so that people yeah. can enjoy their guitars. And they had this special custom-made carpet. Yeah. Uh, and then when they got there, the booth space that they had had a pillar right in the middle of it. So oh they had to, gosh. like, cut up this custom-made rug so that it could go around the pillar. And then they set everything up with their isolation booth. And they came in the next day, and the cleaning crew had, like, destroyed it with a vacuum cleaner. Just kind of gone through and, like, imploded the door. And, you know... It's fun to, to read their early days because it's like all of the stuff that would discourage most people to just like, I'll just go become an accountant or something. Yeah. Like, <laughs> this is not worth it. Yeah. Um, like Yamaha had one of the the most extreme areas, you know, like for people to go in and play all the new instruments. They really pushed the Rev Stars. Um, all the, it was like a massive haul just yeah. for Yamaha. With a was rotating it in the convention platform. center? Yeah, because they used to do it in this in the hotel, the Hilton. Yeah, yeah, they, because the because in the past the show was just so packed. They did the Hilton uh, the night before for like an AIM yeah. kind of meeting. They had an incredible cheese spread, not like a cheese spread, like a easy <laughs> cheese, but like. But was there a cheese spread with the cheese spread? Oh yeah, no, they had a spread that had a lot of different cheeses, and we walked in, and you know about. 20 feet out i was like that right there that's humboldt fog that's a bloomy rind and joseph was like yeah, hush and then we got up and there was a little placard that said humboldt fog so from that point on i was just i feel like every event we're I starting went to, a new podcast just to discuss yeah your expertise on cheese the cheese expertise and i've always thought cooper that you're kind of cheesy sometimes mm-hmm. this proves it absolutely um so yeah they had the hilton i think it was actually marriott the night before mm-hmm. um that they did a Yamaha event, great cheese, fantastic time. At the show itself, they had like a nine-foot grand on a spinning platform in the middle, and different performers got up there and jammed. And wow. It was cacophony because people were over there playing, you know, like the silent bass through a massive amp and like slamming. and So you couldn't really hear much at the show. But Taylor had an awesome catch event that I was really excited for and then exceeded my expectations. Um, and I'm excited to talk a little bit about some NAM exclusives that I got to play. Because uh, you got to see photos. But I, got I to did. Play them. I did. I appreciated the photos. Let's uh, Before we talk about the exclusives, let's talk about what the catch event is. Yeah. We've talked about it in some of our videos, but it's interesting because it was named for a place it used to be and now they're just running with it, mm-hmm. uh, which I think it works. It's a good name for what the event is. Yeah. So basically... They had it this year at the Radisson Blue up on the rooftop, but I think it was somewhere around 30 guitars, 35 guitars maybe. Um, and you go in, you can mingle and hang out with some cool people, including the newly appointed CEO, Andy Powers. Mr. Andy Powers, we, we need to talk about that in a second. Um, so 
you know, you, you could hang out with the reps and just, you know, people from all the way up at Taylor. I got to meet a lot of cool young folks that are actually working with JR for, you know, in our account and everything. Uh, that was cool. But uh, basically you walked in and there's guitars on stands with spec sheets and they're all incredible, all one of a kind basically. And um, you can place a business card. They do a drawing. It's, it'll say, you know, limited to 10 guitars, limited to 25. So the first card they pick, you get that guitar. Um, the next, say if it's 10, the next nine they pick, you can you get one made for you. Right. Um, and there was some really surprising things. I chose one that I loved that I have fingers crossed that we get into the store and we can, we'll obviously have a cool video on that. But they, like one thing that I saw that blew my mind, I was with Aaron. We were walking around. Mr. Aaron Dablo. Yeah, the man. And he literally walked around with me and told me a story behind every single guitar. And it was very fun. But they had a sinker redwood top black top it's <laughs> kind of fits the purpose and he was like let me tell you something not all sinker redwood is incredible looking and so i just thought how crazy would it be if we painted this if one we black? just paint it so nobody knows it was black sinker redwood <laughs> with bloodwood uh binding oh, okay, and it was cool. wild and silent satin finish radius armrest well some people love black guitars i remember um the doyle dax models you could get in black or you yeah. get a natural when they came out and yeah and what's crazy is the natural like the one i have is probably some of the most ridiculously quilted maple i've ever seen yeah so it's cool to own this guitar but those first runs the black ones were also quilted maple and they did like a transparent black yeah so you could still see it later ones it was just all opaque so it was like it could be pretty maple and you don't know it's just black. yeah so but yeah, yeah it's, it could be cool it was wild the one of the weirdest things that i saw was there was a woman with an iphone on a selfie stick that i saw on her screen she had like six different people on a call and she was going up and down with every single one. And she had a stack of business cards and was like a proxy buyer for there you go. everyone. So I got her on our payroll for, <laughs> for next year. Um, Wheeling and dealing. But there was a T5Z that I think I sent you a photo of. I posted a video of it on our story. But it was like sparkle, pearlescent, color changing. Like it looked like a Anacleto, you know. Yeah. But uh, it was insane. I think the sticker price on it was eleven thousand dollars maybe uh i mean it was wild but it was beautiful and the thing that blew my mind even more is that yes you know you're supposed to play them and get to know them so right. but people were snagging this thing walking outside onto the balcony and holding up in the sun I'm yeah like, dude be careful with that yeah that's funny um, but man they had paella they had the best flan i've had in my life they treated us right they wine and dined us to get some catch guitars but it was I, I was so here uh dining on nyquil, well, NyQuil and dayquil yeah. while you were there so good times. i mean i had some of that too but it was for a party reasons <laughs> um no with jr and i were just dayquil all day you um, know what's funny about the the catch event it was the last one i went to which was uh january 2020 uh I, i'm always kind of surprised you know you tend to hold opinions of like that guitar will never sell you'll mm -hmm. see a certain thing you know just like now there's no there's no buyer for that guitar yeah so there was a particular t5z that uh my good friend paul tobias i think ended up with and it was bright yellow <laughs> with like an eight ball inlay on it yeah and i'm just like no one's ever going to buy that guitar and if i understand correctly he bid on it he got it his wife was probably very upset with him 
and he immediately sold it. Like, immediately sold it. And so I, I just, those times like yeah. that where I go like, I know nothing. You know, Martin did something similar in their booth where they had, I think, 12 custom shops that it was similar. You know, you enter in a drawing, if you, you win it, you get it. And then not like Taylor, where you have one built for you, it was you have the option, right? Right. Um, they had a few one-offs that they said they weren't going to build again, which were probably the coolest ones. But uh, they course. had some incredible guitars that were like some of the nicest Coca Bolo I've ever seen on a 0028 style. But I mean, it may be 0042 style because the pearl was insane. But um, the first one in their custom kind of lineup was like that it was yellow and baby blue. No, it was orange and baby blue with a massive number on it that was like racing stripe yeah. kind of stuff. And I was like, dude, <laughs> you cannot put that next to a Flame Koa like. D35 it just seems with a rosewood wedge. Yeah. And so on the list, it was like every single guitar was like, go for it. You know, they started off at like six grand. And that one was significantly less because it had like a satin painted top and like mahogany back and sides. But I saw so many people lined up to play it because they're like, man, that's that's cool. It's unique. Um, and I know for a fact that we did not get the Martins that we entered in for. Yeah. We will have some other cool stuff from Martin to talk about soon. But it's how the lottery goes sometimes. Like yeah. last time, we we got more than our fair share. Yeah, I think we got three customs out of the deal. Or yeah. Something, so was that the curly maple? Yeah, we that had two different so cur- cool. maple ones. And um, yeah, the ones that I really liked from from this one, which may be inspiration if somebody wants to do a custom and maybe do a pair of customs, but they were it was like a triple O, an OM, and a, a dreadnought, and it was three and three rosewood back and sides with koa binding and then that reversed yeah um, but the pearl was incredible on them and so i was just thinking how cool it would be to get both of those dreadnoughts and it's like inverse of each other i mean they're really pretty understated whereas the catch guitars were like sky's the limit this is the craziest stuff you've ever seen you know did you happen to play martin's new like b52 warthog or whatever it is guitar do you know what I'm talking about? Which one? Oh, they have the guitar with yes. like the silk screened front of like yes. the fighter jet or whatever. I did see that. I did not play that one. I, I avoided any of the ones with like a silk screen on them. I, I do like, not understand because they had Woodstock and they had Brexit yeah. and all this. I was like, dude, come I on. don't. I'm just going on record. I do not understand these guitars. I got it. Look, I understood it when they were doing like made in mexico x series guitars that were like felix the cat or something Mm -hmm. like that that was cool and quirky and the price was yeah fine i don't understand the u.s made silk screened Mm -mm. artwork guitars i just don't get it the most basic sitka spruce is prettier than that yeah Um, i I just i i I saw uh, you know it's for pre-order on sweetwater and I, i was like who's buying these Cause people the, that have everything the, else. The Brexit guitar with like George Washington with shades and headphones and stuff. Saying been there, done that. Yeah, that didn't Come go on. anywhere. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, anyways. A lot just, of American guitar thought. fans want something Brexit themed. Uh, I did some of the things that I got to play that I was really impressed with. One of which, um, you know, I sent you that picture of the size five. Mm-hmm. That was cool. It you was know, cool, it was right? The first time I've ever played one. I told one. you. And it's tuned up, I think, a minor third yeah. from standard. Really cool. Um, I did get to play the uh, infamous all-solid wood SC. 
which if you don't know about this guitar, I think I alluded to it a couple weeks ago. Let's talk about this. So everybody's been asking, I think probably every podcast we've done, we've mentioned, hey, why don't they do a 28? The first thing I said when I reviewed the SC-13E was, this is the most important guitar they made in like 20-some-odd, 30-some-odd years. It's entirely new design. It's bolt-on neck. It's it's really, this is the kind of of out-of-the-box thinking they need to do, not... World War II fighter jets on the tops of guitars. Yeah. They need to make a solid wood version. So they finally do, and it's how much? Uh, it was eight grand. Eight grand, and it's rosewood and spruce, and it was a nice-looking guitar, but inlay, I think they limited it to 100 models. I mean, 100 you know, serial numbers. Because it's, it's like 45-style inlay or 42-style yeah, inlay. Yeah, right? but it's just like, come on. If they would have... I know it has to do probably with resources and also like we're putting something out crazy so everybody's going to want it and then we'll put out the 28 version or something. Yeah. But it's like if they wanted to sell thousands and thousands of guitars from this NAM show, just throw out the SC28 and yeah. pre-orders would go through next year. Or an year, SC15. Dude. SC15, dude. 18. Any of those would be... So cool, which at least it proves, yeah, they can do it. Well, and that's my hope, is that they did this custom shop version. Hopefully, it's a precursor to a solid wood American-made SC model, because they need to do it. It's a popular guitar. That's the thing, is they were like, can we accomplish the same thing with solid wood that we did with the laminate back and sides? And maybe this was like a tester. And then they're like, all right, screw it. 42 style. Let's, let's throw as much pearl as we possibly can <laughs> um, at it. But I l- really loved all the new Modern Deluxe. That was probably the biggest, like, in terms of volume, they're released for 22. Yeah. Um, all kinds of new Modern Deluxe. And I've been itching to play the 12 frets, and they were very, very cool. Um, I liked those a lot. All the customs were sweet. But, you know, it was just tough because you finally in a line where every there every guitar has got like five people waiting to play it. I finally got to the double O twelve twenty eight modern deluxe and then strum a chord and you can't hear a thing. Right. You just gotta go off the feel. And the feel was nice, but I know for a fact that luckily we will see one of those by the end of the year, so we can dive in a little bit more. Oh god. Um So you talk yeah. about the custom stuff, but the other thing that you alluded to early on is Taylor does kind of like a custom that's not a custom, mm-hmm. and it's a limited. That's not a limited. It's yeah. a NAM exclusive, NAM and there's a number of those that we've got coming, yeah. and we can talk about them. We can talk about them. I, we got clearance, yeah, um, which is cool because we're opening the top secret Manila envelope right now. It's been a little bit since I've been excited for like the next few months, but there's more cool stuff that's very limited coming in uh, than I've ever seen. Maybe you know all at one time and. I think there's something for everybody. I'm going to get out of the way because this is the one that I'm least excited for. But it will find a good home. The new 8017 red top. It's cool. I mean, the hey, black top. It's like Aaron Dablo said. Sometimes, you know, the top's not pretty and you want to make you it black. Gotta, well, sometimes you want to make it red. You want to make it red. It's a good red, at least. I mean, I saw it. It's, it's a good red. Um, but, yeah, it's. I know that the black tops have done really well. Yeah. So why not do a red top? Do a red top. So there's going to be a red top 8017. Um, there will be a NAM exclusive 514 that I believe, if I'm re- remembering correctly, is um, cedar top and 
highly flamed blackwood yep. back inside. Highly flamed Tasmanian blackwood. And the cool part about it is the appointments are so understated that it really highlights the wood. Yeah. Um, and I'm a huge fan of like the 514 with cedar mahogany. Yeah. And so I think the combination of cedar and blackwood is yeah. going to be just stellar. Yeah, that's going to be a really cool guitar. Um, there is a Sinker Redwood Top GT811. Yeah. That's going to be the That's the one I'm the really excited about. For yep. sure. And I mean, let's say that again, a GT811E with Sinker Redwood. Sinker Redwood and <sighs> it looks we're so not, cool. I mean, it's okay to talk about pricing, I guess, but I just think about Sinker Redwood as a presentation series right. wood and it's a really high entry point. And it is priced along the lines of a regular 811, which is not a cheap guitar by any stretch of the means, but it's an incredible piece to look at, you know, and it's something really special. And then it's not a $10,000 GT. It's know? not. And, you know, it, there's a thing that Taylor does when you have a smaller body guitar that I think a lot of people, it's kind of a, a oh, yeah, that makes sense, kind of a duh moment. But th there's a lot of wood that doesn't get used on guitars mm -hmm. because something around the periphery prevents it from being suitable, yeah. you know, to, to make the size of the top work, yeah. you know. But when you go to, like, from a GA, from a grand auditorium to, like, a grand concert, now you have a smaller top. So sometimes yeah. tops that weren't available for GA work there, and you end up getting prettier wood like more yeah. figured wood koa or whatever um and the same thing holds true for the uh, gt because it's again a little smaller yeah and so there's this wood that's that's kind of in that sweet spot for that size of a yeah. body that they can use and the cool thing about sink or redwood too is like the amount of variation mm -hmm. right obviously because some of it deserves a black top apparently but um <laughs> the one that i saw there was almost like light, like almondy mm -hmm. colored, and then I saw the photos that Jr. sent to us, and it was red, red. Yeah, yeah. and so I'm and expecting some of, some of it's like on my custom. It's like I call it yeah. that guitar cocoa. Yeah, because the top is just chocolatey. Yeah, you so know? I'm expecting however many we get. There's going to be so much variation yeah. that, and they'll all look great because it's like you said. They're not going to put ugly sinker because there is no ugly. Sinker, it's go, it's going to be yeah. really nice sinker that wouldn't fit on a bigger yeah. guitar. So I'm excited for those. Uh, there's going to be a T5Z with like a dark gray flame top or like a quilted top. It's a quilted top with like this dark transparent yeah. finish that's Which really cool. will be cool. And that's, uh, I think it's welcome because so many people want T5Zs all the time and we rarely have them. It's hard yeah. to get a hold of them. Um, side note, we have a really cool T5, not Z. But uh, on consignment right now. Did you see that one, Jeff Willis's? I I'm aware of that guitar. That guitar was purchased uh, by him at a road show. Yeah. Years back when the T5s first came out, and it is Macassar ebony topped, uh, right? I think it's Cocobolo. Or is it Cocobolo? I think it's. It's Cocobolo. a beautiful guitar. Either way, and it just, was a custom. It was a. It's a one off. Yeah, because the label says T5s. Yeah. Um, it's striking, and so that one just came in we're getting photos that'll be on the website soon but um for somebody that's a fan of like the bigger kind of you know the t5 not z it's the really kind cool. of es sized t5 so that's cool and that'll be available at the same time hopefully as these limited nam exclusive t5 z's that have pretty striking quilt tops yep. very cool and the final one which also like the 811 i think i'm most excited for is a K62 yep. CE. 
So think about that. It's a Grand Concert Body, K-Series, Alcoa, 12-string. 12-fret. 12-fret. I mean, like, I mean, I'm in love with the 652 or 562, you know. It's actually the one I've been waiting on. When they talked about, the, when they came out with the first 12-fret, 12-string V-Class with, you know, the all 12 strings going on the six bridge pins. Like, like yeah. That whole design, it came out with the 562. And as soon as it did, I was immediately asking, when are you going to do a K62CE? Yeah. You know, because I love Koa 12-string guitars. Yeah. I mean, the the example that they had there was beautiful Koa. And that's, I think so many people now get into the K24 builders because mm-hmm. that's like the one that's kind of the the hot cat on the block. But we have a regular K24CE here, and it's a totally different vibe all gloss with the shaded edge burst and everything. It's really beautiful. I love the K26 and the K22 and everything, but having a 12-string version, plus with the inverted, you know, bass string on top. and it's, Is it inverted? Isn't it? I don't think so. I don't think it's like the Builder's Edition 6. Well, we'll Cause see. Because I, lo- I looked at the photos specifically for that, for that, and I thought to myself, well, if I was to buy one, I would just put the change the nut change out. the nut so i mean that's an option i guess i was under the impression that it was but i guess you're right um it, we had a whole conversation yesterday me and ted about early 12 string records like you can hear it and kind of tell the bases on top on some of those mm-hmm. guitars and he's like why doesn't anybody do that i'm like dude taylor does it get on tgu man there you go um but yeah so that's that's the five that they announced red top 8017 sinker redwood gt811 514 limited with the cedar blackwood um the k62 and the t5z with the quilt top something for everybody mm-hmm. and hopefully we'll have a good handful of each one but um yeah it, it was cool because i got to sit in that booth jr brought me each one and then we just talked about it and the sound and they all have a very unique tone of their own um and it's cool because 8017 i mean it's not like since it's a NAM exclusive, it's going to be an affordable, $5,000. Yeah. You know, it's an exclusive. Taylor makes it easy to get something that's unique without having to go custom, you know, which yeah. is nice. Um, and so that was cool. I will also say, obviously, they had to do this, but we've blown through all of our 700 series, and now it's like trying to get them back. But seeing the ones that they had there, they picked the craziest color. Creme de la creme. They had a... K-Series co on those ones, I guarantee you. Um, I mean, they were awesome. But, yeah, 700 Series, to no one's surprise, have gone super fast, and they've been received very well. And immediately after that, they're like, boom, check these out. You know? So this is a good segue to talk about their new president and CEO, Andy Powers. You know, it's interesting because these are all Andy Powers' designs, you know, him coming up with stuff. And I'm really, I'm really happy for him. Yeah. Um, you know, he is, he's one of those unique individuals that when I've spent time with him, he strikes me as just as a unique person, as very smart, you know, uh, a different in all of the right ways from, yeah. from, you know, a lot of other people. But how he came to be with Taylor, I think is just uh, borderline miraculous. Do you ever hear the story of like Bob's wish list? I think so, but I, I need a refresher. I think you've told me before, but I, I mean, Bob Taylor basically wrote down like a prayer, a wish list of like, because you know, at his age, he started thinking about successor. Yeah, you know, uh, what does the future hold? And so, it, it was like someone 
that was young enough but had so much experience that like that person basically wouldn't exist yeah and that they'd be willing to make a lifetime commitment and they were from southern california and like you know all better guitar builder than him and all of these things and andy checked every single box and only because i think he built his first like ukulele when he was eight you know or something and so he's a unique individual but i also got to give taylor props for a few things one you know they are employee owned Mm -hmm. now and i think that was done on purpose with a an eye to protecting the company Mm -hmm. because they've seen in our industry what's happened with other companies fender is a great example right fender got bought out by cbs yeah, sold to CBS, and it's not known as a very good era. And then the employees basically eventually bought it back from CBS. You yeah. know, um, they they wanted to avoid something like that. Mm-hmm. And so by putting the company in the hands of the employees, they can ensure that the future is protected by the people that care the most. And then with Andy, his path was always to put his imprint on the company. You know, and. Yeah. Bob, I, I I told Bob once at a NAMM show, um, I very I have only spoken to Bob Taylor a number of times, but one of the times I talked to him, I said that I appreciated that he was actively turning the reins over to someone younger and preparing them for success, because a big complaint in our society now is like the older baby boomer generation hanging on too long, yeah, you know, and depriving people of an opportunity to kind of step up and lead and so forth. And so it's like, it's the opposite there. You know, yeah. he's, he's found this person. He's invested a lot into him. He's super talented on his own. Right. And he's, he's, in, he's believed in him to the point of like, you're a better builder than me. You're a better designer than me. You're going to take everything that we've come up with at this point and you're going to make it better and, yeah. and, and wholeheartedly endorsed that. Um, so I think that's unique. But the best part about it is they're avoiding what happens in a lot of companies. Guitar companies, it's easy to identify with, right? Yeah. But you bring someone in to lead that's not super tied into your product, maybe not better than you were, particularly if it's a design standpoint, it's very yeah. iffy. And you end up with kind of designed by committee, watered down product. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very it's very hard to avoid that. It's, it's actually harder to avoid that uh, than it is to you know find someone like Andy. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, it, I feel like that goes top down with Taylor too, because like I said, just meeting with Jr. Um, and hanging out in their booth, I met a bunch of people that were like my age that were working for Taylor or younger that were like, oh yeah. I mean, first of all, it was really cool. I'm sure they all prepped, and I don't want to discount this, but everybody that I talked to was like, man, Alamo Music, we love the videos. Everybody watches them. And it's just so cool to hear that kind of thing. Yeah. But a bunch of people from marketing to sales and all the way in between um, were really young. They knew about our company. They knew more than I ever could about Taylor Guitars. And uh, it made me think, like, in a few years, you know, you and JR are going to be off smoking cigars in your... (laughs) armchairs while me and these people have the the real meetings uh no it was it was just cool because they're it's a bark lounge or something that yeah, rubs your butt and blows smoke at the same time yeah, yeah and so we're uh i mean it's just cool that they're already bringing in kind of next gen of people and uh i'm pretty sure that a few of them are coming down in a few months and we're gonna hang out and they're already planning on come through seeing the store not just as our like direct rep but just adjacent right and, you know and it's really 
a very community feeling kind of thing. And even when I got there for our meeting, we stood around and JR just pulled different people and introduced me to everybody. And they all were like totally same vibe, very, very nice, but also like focused on what we were there for. You know, yeah. they want to talk guitars and ideas and get creative, like just in the initial meeting. I mean, that, that, there's a truck, there's a bus pulling up with Taylor employees outside right <laughs> yeah, now. I wish that were the case. That's just the growth of San Antonio if people are hearing it on the podcast. So, well, that's cool. I'm really glad that you had a good time at NAMM. I, awesome. I regretted not being there. Uh, miss all of the, the peeps at Taylor Guitars that I did not get to see. So, next time. Um, um, yeah, next year, if we can both go. Yeah. And maybe some vendors will be sad that they missed out. And so, we'll just take it all by storm. There you go. Um, so, I think it's worth it to talk about, because we can, because... We control the narrative. There you go. Um, why don't we dive in a little bit, just scratch the surface on what we're getting from Martin. Let's do it. So we... Because this is a cool opportunity that we, we've Yeah, got. we've gotten this, um, and we received a list that said, hey, um, we got some prototypes that have never left the factory, they've never been put up for sale, and do you want any of them? And we, we said we want all of them. Yeah. Um, so Chris and I went through the list and we started kind of cherry picking and then kind of realized each one kind of has its own pretty interesting story. Well, there's something for everyone. Yeah. Literally. Literally, there's something for every single person. Yeah. There are 20-year-old prototype guitars that have a stamp in them that say prototype that have never left the factory. It's l actual closet classics <laughs> from the factory. Um, it's literal new old stock. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we will definitely be getting into it with a ton of videos and making them all available because while I think Chris is in agreement with me that it's a good opportunity to scoop up a few special Martins for ourselves, um, it's one of the coolest groups of guitars. Just, I mean, things that never became models, things that were early versions and what we were told i'm sure this is okay to say but they build a few when they have an idea um they hold on to one for archiving purposes mm -hmm. and then in a lot of these cases this is the other one that they right. built you know um and i mean there's just really killer stuff obviously the big flashy ones are 45s and 42s and 41s there's and a beautiful koa one in there oh my yeah that's the koa the, on that guitar that's the chris Golly, one right there yeah, um, i would love to have that and guitar. you know chris was the one to point out like there's not a ton of koa martins rarely that i i would i've always said i would love for martin to do more with koa you only ever see it really on like custom shop stuff or special edition stuff limited edition things and it's always like just spectacular yeah um I mean, the Vintage series, which has been discontinued, which was yep. some of my favorite guitars, hence why I love those 12 frets. There's a prototype from the Vintage series. Two. Um, yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it's just very, very cool stuff, and I'm really excited to get into it. They all have, like, the original hard cases that were with them. Some of them are, like, faux alligator cases. But, um, you know, it's it's going to be interesting if we can have newer counterparts to try and compare but it's also such a crazy experiment like when else are you going to find a virtually unplayed guitar that's made in 2002 yeah that you can just see how it ages with like in a vacuum basically you know interesting story about that 
So, because I thought about this in regards to, you know, if they weren't being played, <clears throat> have they been aged? Yeah. So, I think I've shared this story before, but it bears repeating because it's a very interesting experiment. Yeah. Vintage Guitar Magazine ran an article a few years back on these old pre-war D45s. Did I ever tell you about this? I don't think so. So, they're, they got a hold of these two guitars. They're both D45s made by Martin. I want to say they were... I don't know, 38s or something, but spectacular vintage examples. Okay. Mm -hmm. They were one serial number apart from one another. And you could look at the wood and say, and basically see that these were the Brazilian rosewood was from, it was the same pieces. Yeah. The spruce on the top was the same pieces. Yeah. Yeah. These are as close as you could possibly get to having the identical same guitar Mm -hmm. that are both like vintage over 80 years old one of these guitars lived a life on one coast i think it was the west coast basically in the closet it rarely got played it was it was like in impeccable condition okay yeah proper humidity no cracks all of this stuff and again not really played that often the other guitar was owned by a musician it was like in Nashville, in East Coast stuff, traveling all the time. It's it had every single scar from the road, you know, that you'd expect a musician who played nonstop over an eighty year period yeah. would have on his guitar. Okay. They brought both of those guitars together and they sound the same. Which is amazing. Yeah. And the takeaway from that that I take is that it's you know a, a question has been, is it about time or is it about playing? And I think the answer is it's about time. You know, what yeah. happens with wood is volatiles, you know, evaporating and, you know, the wood structure basically changing as a result of it. And that's going to happen regardless. Yeah. Um, I think in the short term, playing can do something. You know, you have those things like, oh, is it tone right or something? You basically put on your guitar, it vibrates it, you know, when you're not playing and it's supposed to open it up more. But every... <laughs> uh, we're in the wrong business. We should be making like, like doodads for guitars that people buy on Amazon. But... Uh, every example I've ever heard of that is when you st- when you stop using it, yeah, it will kind of return back. So it like goes from an excited state back to a yeah. non excited state, and it's it's whatever. So it's it's transient, yeah, you know. But time time isn't, and so yeah. these guitars are new aged Martin guitars, yeah, which is pretty incredible. I mean, especially like there's. I'm excited to see some of the models that did become standards. Yeah. I mean, one of which that was not a prototype is just like a 20-year-old D28. Yeah. Just exactly how they made them. And it was just, I guess, an early run from when they, they did that. But um, does it sound like an old older D28 versus a new one? And so it's good experimental stuff. But like we said, there's something for everybody. So there are really nice... You know, they change, these brands change their series, they change how they organize things, but Solidwood Martin Guitar from, you know, 2005, that was from a discontinued series that was a prototype of that, that's just like a spruce and mahogany dreadnought. I mean, it's it's going to sound good, yeah. and, it's, and it's something that, it's older, it's in great condition. And it's and a real it's affordable not, option. Yeah, it's in not this list. very expensive yeah. compared to going right now to go buy a D18 or something. But well, I, that's the thing. Like pricing has just gone up because pricing's gone up. Yeah. Yeah. So there's so many benefits to these prototypes. Yeah. So I'm excited. Uh, there's a really cool one that's like a 
Dreadnought with a cutaway and out of nowhere just has a three-piece back with like a rosewood wedge. Yeah. And it's just something you can't find. You know, it's like little things. There is a all-solid mango wood ukulele um, that never made it to production that is just a one-off, basically. Yeah. Um, there are... I mean, I'm really excited to see what that prototype stamp looks like, you know, and where it is. And It's on the neck block. Like on the inside by yeah. the cereal? Yeah. Is it a brand? It's a... It's a it's a brand it's kind of a stamp on there yeah that alone is something cool for a collection but all of these are player ready guitars i mean it's not like you know some of them yes the om with figured koa that can go in your plexiglass display case and be a special piece forever but i mean come on triple o or double o 28 vs those are awesome guitars. You can't get them anymore. The closest you're going to get now is one of the new modern deluxes. That's going to be five grand. Right. And, this and it's is, different. It's not, yeah. it's not vintage. It's yeah. different. So this is both vintage series and new vintage. Yeah. You there know? you go. But yeah, we're really excited <laughs> for that. We're excited for Nam exclusives. We got Alamo, more Alamo exclusives coming in from somebody else. Um, so it's going to be a very good, couple months for guitar fans for cool. sure well i got something else i want to ask you about now what's leading got? into my next subject do you see anything hand wired at, at now um yeah i saw hand wired snake oil <laughs> hand so wrung out snake we're going to start a new segment that that deals with stuff we've already talked about in some of these shows but it's this is going to be the new Busting myths segment. It's time to discuss the myths. Myths, 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 myths. Myths. So there's lots of myths. There's lots of snake oil in the guitar world, as you probably mm -hmm. know. Anyone who spent any time on the Harmony Central you know, chats back in the day know that everyone has an opinion and most of them are wrong. Yeah. Everyone, like, what did so-and-so have in their rig that made them sound like this, that, or the other? And what I want to talk about today is... Handwired. Handwired. <coughs> if I could stop coughing. Oh, my gosh. Cough wire, dude. <coughs> yeah. It is the Saharan dust that's in the air. You will see. Uh, is there Saharan dust going on right now? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's all over the cars. It's all in my lungs, evidently. All right. Got it up. We got Saharan. We got I also had a cold for two here. weeks. It wasn't the Rona. I tested four times. I'm like, surely I have coronavirus. Because I was miserable the whole time you're at NAM. Desert in the lungs. I slept dude. three hours a night for like two week period. It was horrible. Anyway, I slept three hours a night because Zach Marr wanted to work from <laughs> literally. <laughs> with, with the time change, we got up at five a.m. You know, and he was out there with his computer. So I was like, I guess I have to do this too. We get back from the dinners. He's like, get your computers out, dude. Yeah, I think the last time he did that, everyone revolted. He's like, okay, let's debrief, and everyone's like, nah. Yeah, nah. I did get a bottle of uh, some bourbon. We got Zach Marr to have a drink with us, uh, so we had a good time. But the myth of hand-wired <coughs> Saharan dust pickups. Uh, well, yeah. so hand-wired, the big things in our industry are hand-wired amps, hand-wired pedals. And most every boutique manufacturer and major manufacturers create some variation, mm -hmm. or their entire product line is hand-wired. Yeah. There are... Uh, Ivanez is doing this, right? You can buy a Tube Screamer. You can buy a Tube Screamer, like Special Edition. You can also buy the HW hand-wired version, which costs more. All right? Yeah. Uh, Fender amps. Back in the day, they were hand-wired. They now switched the to American hand -wired. PCBs, which is printed circuit boards. 
And then you've got some hand-wired models that you can get at the highest end of their tube amps. They They'll switch to hand-wired. Four or $5,000 amps. And if you go downstairs right now and you go, Cooper, and you ask Gary which is better, he's going to tell you hand-wired sounds better. Yeah. And there are people who swear by their children that they can tell the difference between a PCB board and a hand-wired board. And, you know, what we're talking about literally is a printed circuit board with the components literally soldered onto it or an old-school old school fiber board where every single component in line is soldered separately and independently of one another. So I have a question for you. Can you yeah. hear the difference? Absolutely not. But that's because I don't have a ton of pickiness nor experience. I mean, I've played a few hand-wired. Like, there's a hand-wired vox ac30s yeah. out there that i've played and they sound like a great ac30 and there's also non-hand wired that sound like an ac30 because the end goal is the same i mean i guess but also with pcbs it's like i think the the goal there was precision well i think the goal the goal with pcbs is precision um consistency and speed yeah. Because you can make them faster. Yeah. You know? Uh, now, I will say, for the sake of this discussion and debate, not all PCBs are created equally. That's fair. There are some boards that are thick, and there are some boards that are thin, and the floppiness of a board can contribute to the degradation and damage of the components on it. Yeah. And so if you've got a... And this comes into play more so on an amp, because the boards tend to be very large. Most pedals have a very small circuit board in them, you know? Yeah. And for the application of a pedal, honestly, if you're a small company and you're making a pedal, it's go- probably going to be hand-wired, because that's an easier thing for you to do if you're, like, running out of a garage or a warehouse yeah. or something. If you're a large company selling pedals like Boss, yeah. it would be cost-prohibitive to make a bunch of hand wired stuff because the amount of pedals you have to make yeah. in order to you know keep production up stay lucrative and all hit your targets it just would take too long yeah i think it's interesting to talk about boss and the wazacraft line mm-hmm. because wazacraft is their higher end pedal line that they take classic pedals and they're not hand wired right wazacraft are not hand wired i think that's a misconception everybody thinks oh these ones are two to three hundred dollars instead of eighty to 160 you right. know like the non wazacraft uh or even more with some of these but uh they think oh the price jump is because it's hand wired and it's not what they say is these are made in japan and they have higher quality components right and i think that most people uh, know way too little to then know what that means or ask what that means like i'm not an electrical engineer I don't know what components are different and what aren't. Right. Know? Are you going to dive into the different capacitors that are being used and no. and the various chips and stuff? So I think forth? it's cool that they're made in Japan. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that for a long time, made in Japan has been pretty synonymous with like good quality and and particularly in electronics. Yeah. Electronics I mean, going back for to sure. the '80s when I was a kid, it was like if it was made in Japan, it was good. If it was made anywhere else, it was junk. Yeah. And like you know, with the Fender made in Japan stuff too, and I mean. Yamaha, Red Label, FGX5. You know, it's like Japan, I feel like, is becoming more of a buzzword to signal quality than, say, hand-wired. But hand-wired does have this mythos that everybody's like, oh, that's worth the extra fifty. Particularly with the old school guys. Yeah. Right? Because all of this stuff back in the day was hand-wired, 
really by necessity. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, keep in mind, Fender started as an amp company, not as a guitar company. Yeah. You know, Leo Fender's bread and butter was, you know, fixing radios and stuff and working on PCBs. And yeah. At some point, manufacturing, uh, new manufacturing techniques were developed and these companies slowly got away from it mm-hmm. um, and, you know, started building in various places like Japan or Taiwan. You know, there's that great line in Armageddon, you know, American components, Russian components, all made in Taiwan. Um, you know, and that's that for a lot of things is still the truth of the matter. But uh, there, I mean, there are difference, uh, differences in the quality of components. Yeah. One thing you could say for hand wired is uh, in some circumstances, a hand wired uh, model might have better components, but that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. What do you think? Do you think the same logic applies to hand wound pickups? <laughs> pickups, you know, it's again, it's a number thing, another thing where it doesn't mean better. It could. Yeah. You know, if the person doing it is is good, yeah. sure, that's an improvement. But I think from a manufacturing standpoint, what you really want is consistency. And yeah. the the le- the least consistent thing that you're ever going to have is something made by hand. Mm-hmm. Now, when it when it comes to guitars, most people romanticize and prefer made by hand, even when a lot of it's not made by hand. Mm-hmm. So Fender will tout that a lot of the 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 guitars in the Corona factory have X number of things that are done by hand, Mm -hmm. making it a handmade guitar. But a lot of it's done on CNC for consistency. You know, like I mentioned the last time, I've been watching all these custom shop videos from Fender, and there are some things that are done by hand that surprises me that they still are in those custom shops. All the necks, you know, Mm -hmm. they they do them by hand, which I think is very cool. I think the question is, say you're getting into hand-wound pickups because some of the custom shops that we've had they have hand-wound pickups some of them don't Mm -hmm. for example there are some that we've gotten with texas specials and some that are hand-wound texas specials i think the question becomes do you want hand-wound texas special pickups that sound just like texas specials but you like it that they were hand-wound or are you looking for some sort of tonal difference (coughs) and if you just go based on okay i want them to sound a little different because they were done by hand i want that variation Who's to say that that's better or worse than the normal Texas special pickups that you buy? I mean, at the end of the day, it comes down to, do you like the way it sounds? Yeah. Right? And when you're introducing something like variations, that means you may have two guitars that are identical spec-wise that sound differently because there's going to be variations in the spec. Mm-hmm. Now, if you, if you listen to, I think it's Larry Fishman, um, they have their Fluence pickups that don't mm-hmm. use wire wrap. They use PCBs. And he says that it doesn't matter if it's hand-wound or it's machine-wound, there's so much variation within a wound pickup that yeah. there, you're never going to get two pickups that are exactly alike. So according to him, you could go to, LR, uh, you could go to Seymour Duncan, you could buy the same pickup, you, know, you could buy four of them, you could put, the, put it in four different guitars, and everyone's going to be different because of these variations that you cannot remove from the manufacturing process. And so his, his response to that is, Let's make these fluence pickups with these stacked PCBs instead of yeah. you know, wire that's wrapped around it. Um, and that's cool. That's a, that's a new approach to doing that that creates its own thing. And for me, I've never really got, gotten too eaten up about that. I think then the reason I like to talk about this subject and try to bust this myth is people get too focused on it for the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to say right now, 
if you think you can hear the difference between a quality PCB and a hand-wound uh, pedal or an amp, you can't. You can't hear the difference if the components, all things being equal, are the same. Yeah, the goal is the same. Yeah, you can't hear the difference. It's all about a signal path of electricity yeah. running through components. It, it's, it, this electricity doesn't care. If the solders are good and the length of, of the route is, is the same and the components is going through are the same, it doesn't care. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not a benefit to hand wound. So, Cooper, mm -hmm. what do you think the benefit to hand wound is? <sighs> if it's not sound, we're paying more for it, some people, yeah. right? Is there a reason? And I'm going to tell you, there is a reason I might buy an amp, a tube amp that's hand wound or hand wired. Resale value. <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> Just well, not if they listen to this podcast. But <laughs> yeah, we're tanking the market for hand wound here. That's, I mean, that's my first thought is that it's always going to. There's going to be some boomer cat out there that will spend a little bit more. No, I don't know. I, I'm assuming you're going in the direction of longevity. Maybe it's repairability. Repairability is the only reason that you might prefer a hand-wired amp or pedal over something that's not hand-wired. And the reason is it's easy to repair the circuitry should something go wrong. Yeah. You know, because it's it's fiberboard in line wired stuff, so you could bring it to just about any reasonably good electric technician. Yeah. They can diagnose the problem and they can fix it. Now that doesn't mean a PCB can't be fixed. Yeah. You know, I, I'm amazed. I see these guys that like do TikTok videos that work on like iPhones or PS5s yeah. that they get and they find the smallest, tiniest component that's soldered onto this PCB and they're able to get that like yeah. microscopic component off, you know, clean all the flux off and repair it. You yeah. know. And they've got the patience of Joseph Slocum. I mean that you know, they are really good at doing that yeah. kind of a tedious thing. Um, but those guys are harder to find um, than someone who can just fix a hand-wired board. Yeah, and then you run into what we've run into, like waiting on a part. Waiting on a part. The other downside to PCBs is if you, if you don't have someone who's going to dig in to find that specific component, you usually end up just having to order yeah, the board the from the manufacturer, and then it's a, and is it available, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, we literally, you know, I think that every year since 2020, March 2020, probably every month can have like a phrase of the month, mm -hmm. new normal, uh, whatever, social distancing, all that, supplies supply chain constraints now the phrase is waiting on a part waiting on a part it's 105 degrees in san antonio texas and every time i ask about why our air conditioning doesn't work at alamo music waiting on a part we're waiting on a part it's like what is our ac a qsc speaker over here i feel like george clooney in in oh brother where art thou two yeah. weeks from everywhere yeah. <laughs> what a geographical oddity <laughs> yeah yeah so i think that i mean it's worth it as we move forward in the podcast to dive into those myths. Yeah. Um, we've, we've hinted at so many of them in our videos, but what I think we need to back it up with is let's get a hand-wired amp in here and it's non-hand-wired brother and do some shootouts. I would love to see, too, when we're talking about pickups, I know I like the sound of Texas specials because mm -hmm. I have them in a guitar. I like how those sound. I don't know 
if my ear is tuned in enough to hear Texas specials next to pure vintage 65s and Vmod 2s. And I think I could tell the difference between noiseless and not noiseless. Sure. But I think... Just put it in first position and turn it up and you'll yeah. hear the difference. But when it comes to pickups, a lot of people have really hard opinions. Oh, man, I don't want those Vmod 2 pickups. I really wanted those pure vintage. But, you know, the name implies these are vintage styled with modifications to make them better for the, the player. Right. Um, I think we should get back to our... Uh, get back to our roots of blind tests that we've done in the past and maybe do some of that stuff with the more, uh, the less obvious, you know, I think it's easy to do a blind test like we did between a triple O body and a dreadnought, yeah. but let's do a Waza craft versus a non Waza craft and let's do a hand wire versus none. And I think that a lot of people would maybe feel a little more comfortable in their purchases knowing like, the goal here is the same. You're trying right. to get the same classic sound. A blues driver, you don't want a Waza Craft blues driver to sound different than a normal than blues an actual driver. blues it's driver. A really good one, right. you know. But it's interesting. I'd like to hear some uh, some feedback if people think we're liars. Yeah, no, I think it'd be great to do these tests. I think, you know, what we just talked about here, there are often benefits like with Waza Craft. Maybe the benefit is that your, your TU3 doesn't die after two years like my... <laughs> Uh, my sister-in-law has gone through four of them. You know, maybe a Wazacraft one would last longer because it's better components, uh, supposedly. You know. You know, did you watch the most recent sponsored by Universal Audio video with Matteo Sassato and Rhett Scholl and Rick Beato and? I haven't seen it. No. So this is something that I really would like to dive into a little bit more on the channel and on the podcast. UA put out three new pedals. The Woodrow, the Ruby, and the Dream 65, I think, or maybe just called the Dream. And they're kind of iridiums, not iridiums. I mean, it's they're, they're, they're impulse the game, response pedals. Which is funny because I've been told many times it's not impulse response, it's high, you know, high efficiency modeling. It's not, you know, it's different than an iridium, it's different than an IR200, it's different than whatever. Um, this is the game that everybody's getting into, and I believe it's yet to be seen if it's like a fad or if it's the wave of the future i don't think it's a fad you know it's funny zach and i were talking about this before you came in the room talking about different pedals uh jhs did this blind test of like expensive pedals versus cheap pedals and picked the wrong ones several times and i think that speaks to an issue i think a lot of people are drinking kool-aid in the pedal market you know it's if someone on the internet that has clout says xyz pedal is really great then everyone goes out and buys it and it's out of stock and it's back ordered and then the used market goes up and you know hey it's a great game to get into if you happen to be one of those voices you just buy a bunch of those and then say something and wait for it to go up i'm not saying that's what's happening i'm just saying uh people should do that if if they're not (laughs) but what i am saying is that there are there's a lot of uh, snake oil. There's a lot of people buying things based upon what people have said rather than their firsthand experiences. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of pedals that are basic componentry pedals that I think are a bit overpriced. And so what I was saying, in my opinion, is the non-overpriced things are the things that are have uh, DSP. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's if it's a lot of processing that's going on, that's expensive componentry, and the the price is worthy of it. You know, yeah. whether it looks like a big sky with a digital readout or it looks like the UA stuff where it looks like an old school pedal, but there's a lot of stuff yes. going on inside of it. Um, I think those are 
offer more value than something that's yeah. just various components on a PCB. Um, but because it's popular for whatever reason, they're slapping multiple hundred dollar price tags on it yeah. uh, when the value is not really there. But the other part of that is what's happening right now is effectively technology that's existed, that's yeah. already been around in studio rack space is now being repackaged into like amp tops from uh, what was the reference amp we were talking about earlier? Uh, it's the Kemper. Yeah. Okay. A Kemper is basically what would have been in a rack mounted studio system before repackaged into something that's an easier to deal with interface and more portable. And the same thing's happening with these pedals. You're taking technology that existed and yeah. you are, you are streamlining it and making it portable and easier to interface with to accomplish these things. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know that it's, it's that much of a fad. And in fact, I can tell you, I, yesterday at church, I played, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, and I've got my amp on the stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've moved it off and we've moved it on and we've done everything we can over the years to lessen stage volume. Mm-hmm. I use in-ears now. I don't use wedges. A lot of the, the people are using headphones or in-ears, what have you. And yesterday, as I was playing, I was thinking to myself, am I going to, at some point, take my boogie off the stage and have some IR pedal or something yeah. to accomplish? Because I'm, I'm listening to it through uh, in-ears anyway at this point. Yeah. You know? Um, and I can make an ISO box for it, mm-hmm. which I might do. But I could also go this other route, which is almost going back to what I used to do, yeah. which was effectively studio quality modeling yeah um yeah but live you know it's interesting because we recorded that live album a couple you know a couple months ago now and chris klein was the one that tracked it and spent all this time getting everything mic perfectly on stage we sit down we listen to the raw just you know pushed because he just took it straight off a snake from the board right and we listened to it sounded great and then you went to my vocal mic which was just like an sm58 Mm mm-hmm and it was just like a room mix with a ton of vocals because drums are right behind me. Yeah. My amp is right behind me. I mean, it was impossible to isolate vocals. Turned out cool. I mean, I like how it sounds, but that was the big thing. And that's where I think it comes in with these IR pedals or heavy-duty DSP from UA. It's one giant pedal that's $400 just meant to sound like exactly like a Vox AC30 or... Right a 55 tweet or something. The thing is trying to convince people that have played shows for years and years with air being pushed on right. the back of their legs, even if it sounds exactly the See, same. That's the struggle I have. That's why the yeah. amp sits behind me right now. Yeah. Cause I need to feel it. You need to feel it. You need to feel it in your feet. Yep. Like that's part of the whole thing. When you hit a massive chord, that's what brings the room alive. Also, it's convenient for when I want to turn around, kneel down, and have my guitar feedback. Yeah. And if anyone's saying, wait, I thought he said he played in church. I do. That's a rock and roll <laughs> church right there. Um, yeah, that's the thing. Is I think it's going to be harder to convince people that have gotten used to playing a show with that feeling versus younger people that maybe have never went out and played a big old show where they had a AC 30 that they're playing through or yeah. a Fender deluxe, uh, where the ground has vibrated. They just love the sound from classic recordings. And now you can get that in a pedal. Well, and big stars are doing this. You know, yeah. I remember, uh, it was Neil Sean is, uh, 
he's he uses in ears. There's nothing on the stage. He's completely wireless, and the volume of what is in is his in his in ears is substantially reduced. You know, because he already deals with tinnitus and stuff. And you know, being in my 40s, you know, that was the big reason I moved to in ears. Is like I want to lower. Yeah. the overall volume I deal with on a regular basis yeah. going into my ears. Not only do I have less going into my ears and can control that volume, but it also filters out a lot of the stage volume that's still there. Does it mess you up when you sing at all? No. When I first got it, it was all, you know, I should just do a video or a podcast talk about this because uh, you have to dial that stuff in. Yeah. And it, it, there was a lot of trial and error in mixing uh, what I needed um, to dial it in. Um, so, yeah, and because I've seen guys pull one ear out, and I have done that. That's how I like to do because I just, it's hard to hear. Yeah. I mean, it stresses me out. I have bit. done that on occasion, but usually it's because something's gone wrong with the mix I have dialed in now that has house, because I have house yeah. you know, piped in there as well and mixed in with it, um, with the Shure system I use. Uh, it's it's fine. Um, I think that's the key is like if you're trying to get into anti ears, which is probably a better call than using wedges. It's going to take a little bit of fine tuning to yeah. find the balance because that's the thing. I'm always used to having like three wedges in front of me, even at like acoustic gigs when I go play places. And then I went, I played somewhere and they're like, oh, we use in-ears here. And I was like, okay, I've never done that before. And then it like totally threw me off. It yeah. was like someone was singing at the back of my head and it was me. When I first did it, I hated it. Yeah. I really, it was, it was weeks of trial and error, but I, I kind of committed to it. Yeah. And I think a lot of people would probably just return it and go, that's not for me. And you have to just kind of commit to figuring out what works for you and the right mix setting up. If you don't have a, a house mic, you know, to pick up the, the ambient stuff, set one up you dial that in um and then at the end of the day it's it's better you know um and if you're in a setup like if you're in a a house of worship like we are um, or if you're in a venue that's smaller or what have you controlling stage volume does nothing but help everyone on the stage and make your house sound better yeah because you're not having to balance in the monitors it's like you're saying with subtractive eq earlier it's the same exact thing as Instead of, I need a lot more drums, turn those guitars down. Dude. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, for real. I was talking about subtractive EQ in a video I did, by the way. So if you're watching this and you don't go to our, or you follow us on YouTube, I did a video today. Basically, it's a 30-minute class in how to set up and amplify an acoustic electric guitar because so many people do it wrong. Yeah. And so hopefully that's that's important. But yeah, subtractive EQ is, whether it's, it's a live mix or it's a recording mix, that's the approach people should take and, and too often don't. Because if you push one thing, inevitably you're going to have to go mm-hmm. push something else and then you're going to go over to the mixer and then your master volume is going to get cranked by the end of it. Well, And, and when you're mixing for like a, a recording, you know, we at our church, I have this ingenious cheap shoelace budget way of having a streamed mix and I'm using logic to do it mm-hmm. rather than an external board. But if you don't subtractively approach your mix or your EQ, you will continually run up against uh, too much gain. You yeah. know, it's just spiking things because oh well, this is too loud. I'm going to turn this up, uh, and yeah. it's 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 you have a finite amount of room. To yeah, work. you have a finite amount of room, and you're just chasing your tail if you yeah. do it any other way. So, man, we talked about a bunch of stuff. Yeah, we covered a lot of good stuff. It's about 500 degrees in here, um, <laughs> and 
I think that you know I was born and raised in South Texas. I know every single time South Texas yeah. in summer is going to get hot, and yet every year I'm just like, man, it's really every, hot. And every year people say the same kind of stuff, like, man, it's rough. It's people like, up north would say, man, it's hot. It's a whole 85 degrees. You just stare at them in Texas. Dude, when it got, I've been taking because I can't take our puppy out during the day to like to walk. Yeah, like I was doing three walks a day. The asphalt's way too. Yep. I mean, just in general, it's too hot for her. She'll get the over here. The grass is getting too hot. Yeah. And so I've been going out at like nine. And it's still like 95 degrees. Yep. It's just dark. Yep. It's oppressive. <laughs> All right. Well, that's good for me to recap. Lots of good stuff coming in. Uh, and so stay tuned. Yeah. Keep an eye on our website. Yeah. Keep an eye on our YouTube channel. And make sure you tune in for our next edition of the Fred Forward Confessional. <laughs> 